You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Our church, uh, as you know, has been in the midst of a four-week sermon series exploring one of the Apostle Paul's letters, which he wrote to an early church in Philippi. This week is week three, and we're coming off a sermon from Alan last week where we heard the Apostle Paul call the church to be of one spirit and one mind. Alan shared with us that the call for unity is a call to harmony, and he played that really cool clip of the difference between people singing all the same melody and then just how amazing it sounds when people break off into harmonies. How do we achieve that harmony then? Well, we were taught harmony is achieved by pursuing humility. And the greatest example of humility is Jesus' death on the cross. He left heaven, came to earth, put on human form, and he's a great high priest now that can sympathize with us. So as Paul continues on through his letter this week, we're in the third chapter, and we're going to find out exactly what the source of disunity was in this church. Why was Paul calling them to unity? What was tearing them apart? If you're familiar with Paul's letters, you won't be surprised to find out that the topic that's causing all this division and strife in the church was over the religious practice of circumcision. Circumcision is, of course, a little awkward for me to have to talk about, and I've been trying to think of ways I could get around it, but you you can't. If you're going to be a faithful student of Paul and of the early church, we have to be willing to, to talk about this. And we have to acknowledge that even though circumcision isn't a major issue for us today, it was a very, 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 very big deal for the churches in Paul's time. And we're going to explore a little bit of why that was. And as we'll see, this this topic, it elicits great passion from Paul because it has a really big implication on the gospel of Jesus. Paul spilled a lot of ink writing against proponents of circumcision And if we don't understand why, we're going to miss a huge part of Paul's theology, which is a justification by grace alone, through faith, not by works. So what I'd like to do today is we're going to read the whole passage, and we're going to to try to break it down and analyze this this dispute. And then we're going to try our best to apply this to our context in Champaign-Urbana. And I think we're going to find that even though we're not arguing about circumcision, The church is still mired deeply in conflict over various things and various ways that we try to add to the gospel. So let's read the passage. I'll pray and then we'll dive in. I'll give you guys a second if you want to grab your Bibles. We're going to be reading from Philippians 3 and we're going to read the whole chapter. So once again, it's Philippians 3. Ready? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day 
of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what, sorry, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will, will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, please help illuminate these words for us and help us to understand them in the time that Paul wrote them and help us to apply them to our lives today. Give us ears to hear and give me words to speak, God. And and if anything's not from you, Lord, I just pray that it would it would depart from our minds. We come before you humbly, Lord, and we ask for your help this morning as we explore your words together. We pray this in your son's holy name. Amen. All right. Now, if last week's passage was a greatest hits of inspirational sayings, this week's could be a greatest hits of epic burns, right? Paul is going scorched earth against a group of people that he describes as dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. I I don't know about you, but if Paul would have came at me with those insults, I would have not been very happy. These are the people causing Paul the most consternation. Because what would happen is this, and, and it happened in Philippi, but it happened in other churches too. So Paul would go and he would plant a church, right? He'd help it get established. He would raise up indigenous leaders. He would commission them, he would lay hands on elders, and and he would warn them to guard their doctrine and their lives carefully. Paul was one of the original church planners, so once things were established, he would move on and start the process over again in a different city. 
And what would happen frequently is after he would depart, a group of people that adhered to a certain ideology would come and infiltrate the church and start teaching um, that this, this new doctrine. And these people were called Judaizers. The Judaizers are the group of people that Paul is describing as dogs. Now, I love dogs. And it's very hard for me to see them used as an insult because I would take it to be a compliment. Um, but we have to understand that this insult was really quite offensive at this time. And it's and it still offensive um, in, in Middle Eastern countries. So before we can really understand that, we do need to pull back a little bit and talk about Judaism. On, on a macro level, you can't have Christianity without Judaism. That's why our faith is commonly described as Judeo-Christian. And that's the main reason why Nick and our teaching team, we insist that this church studies the Old Testament. Even though it's hard, even though it's challenging, we, we want to do this every semester because we need to be familiar with our heritage in order to fully comprehend the gospel. Jesus, Peter, Paul, they were all culturally Jewish. And the Jews were God's original chosen people. And it was amongst this nation that Jesus chose to be incarnated and born as a man. They're important. And it's important for us to value and understand and appreciate the culture. And while you're in college here, if you can, I would encourage you to take a Jewish studies class. Learn about it. Read about it. For, for a Jew then, calling someone a dog isn't exactly what it would be like if we called someone a dog today. A dog would have been a Gentile, someone who wasn't Jewish. It was a distinctly religious insult. Like if I were to call someone a heathen or a pagan. A dog would have been someone outside the covenant of God's people, someone who was ritually unclean. For a Jewish person to be called this would have been deeply insulting and grievous. And a Judaizer, someone who was trying to to carry on the, the, the Jewish law into the new covenant would have felt especially insulted by it. You're calling me an outsider? Now let, let's talk a little bit about the Judaizers for a moment um, and, and what exactly they, they were teaching. So since Jesus and the apostles were all Jewish, the Christian faith, it initially spread amongst the Jewish people. So the first churches were located in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and they kind of exploded out of that region. The earliest believers then would have been culturally Jewish, making the claim that Jesus was their promised Messiah. As the church grew in number and the gospel went out across the nations, many non-Jewish people then would have heard the good news and would have wanted to become disciples of Jesus and have their sins forgiven and to be baptized in his name. But this would have been very hard for a Jewish person to accept. Their whole life would have been dedicated to the notion that you can't be in fellowship with those outside of the covenant of God. And this opening up was a battle that Peter, James, Paul, and other apostles fought for their entire tenure as leaders in the church. There was animosity between two groups of people that held the very different beliefs. Does that sound familiar in our day and age? There was animosity between Jews and Gentiles, and that is why our New Testament is littered with calls for unity 
because these groups of people cannot get along. The Judaizers added a layer of complication but because their stance was in order for a Gentile to become a true follower of Jesus, in order for them to truly be saved, not only did they have to place their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, they also had to adopt all of the Jewish customs and rituals. The most intense being male believers had to be circumcised. If you want a further discourse on this, Paul devotes pretty much all of Galatians to this topic. And he, he gets really um, worked up in that letter, if you read it. Paul tries over and over again in his letters to tackle this bad theology. Therefore, when he calls the Judaizers dogs, he is being scathingly ironic by saying that those who want to push for the Jewish law are in fact becoming spiritually dead like Gentiles. How, how, how much richer is that? How much more potent is that? To, to think of that with all of that background. So as you hear Paul calling these people dogs, evildoers, if, if you're like me, you might have been like, whoa, Paul, you got to relax. Be nice, man. This isn't a way to, to win people over. But Paul couldn't. Paul knew how dangerous the implications would, believe, would be if people started believing in a Jesus plus circumcision form of Christianity. We have to remember this, though. This is so important. Paul was not anti-Semitic. Paul loved his Jewish brothers and sisters. In Romans 9, if you read that chapter, you will see how deeply he loves his fellow kinsmen, wishing that he would be accursed for the sake of more being saved. Paul never rejected Judaism. He rather understood that following Jesus was Judaism fulfilled. The blood of the new covenant was, was bringing out a new thing. It was, it was fulfilling the law. And it, it, it grieves me that the church has had in its history, so many moments of deep anti-Semitism. I think all of us, we need to make sure that we speak out against that as we come across it. And we have to remember, Jesus came to this planet through the Jews. He was himself a practicing Jew, and he fulfilled the promises of the Hebrew Bible, collected, collated, and preserved by the Jewish people. Paul was such a great Jew, he, he goes on and he lists his accolades, right? Could you put up a verse 4 for me, Maya? He was circumcised on the eighth day. He was of the people of Israel. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He was one of the highest ranking religious leaders. As to zeal, he persecuted the church. He, he killed Christians for, for what they believed because he, he was so passionate about Judaism. And as to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. Paul was an excellent Jew. And by laying out his credentials, he's trying to make the point that, that he was probably a better Jew than many of the Judaizers were. But, but why? Why does he do this? What, what's the point? No, no one likes someone who brags, right? The point's in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus, my Lord. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection changed everything for both Jew and Gentile. It, it was no longer about righteousness through the law. Rather, we, can, we could find our righteousness through knowing Jesus. This is very personal for Paul, and this passage drips with the intensity. In verse 8, we read, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. That word rubbish always makes me smile. It's very British. Um, Paul goes on, right? He describes his religious accomplishment as this word rubbish. But I, I just have to point this out. R rubbish isn't quite what he meant. The King James Version actually describes it the best. And it calls it dumb. In contemporary language, there's an even more adequate four-letter word, which I can't say over YouTube. But in our house with baby August, we call it poopy. That's what Paul thinks of his, his prior accomplishments. They're poopy. This should really shake you up, if not make you smile a little. Could you imagine that looking back on, on all the times you've gone to church, all the Bible verses you memorized, all the, uh, I don't know, Awana badges you got. Do people do Awana still? I don't know. But it, you look back on all, all, your, all the things you've accomplished religiously, and you... When you compare them to Jesus, they're dung, they're excrement, they're, they're manure, they're waste, refuse, something you throw out into the garbage. Rubbish. Are you beginning to understand at all why Paul is so angry about what the Judaizers are teaching? Let's reread verse 9 through 11 and help solidify the point. Could you pull that up for me? In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. And I'll, I'll say it a third time. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Righteousness comes through faith in Christ, not through circumcision. Eternal life comes through faith in Christ, not through circumcision. The resurrection from the dead comes through faith in Christ, not through observing the works of the law. Paul is fighting a battle for people's souls, and the bad theology that the Judaizers were teaching was leading to the destruction of people's faith. Righteousness would not be found by the Gentile through getting circumcised. Righteousness would only be found through faith in Jesus. In a different letter that Paul wrote, his letter to the church in Corinth, he makes a point much more succinctly. It reads this, let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to them, to, to them and to which God has called them. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. 
For not, this is really key. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. The, the ritual didn't matter anymore. It was no longer the signifier of belonging to the covenant of God. Jesus' blood was the, the blood of the new covenant. And, and the circumcision was now circumcision of the heart, not of flesh. It was no longer a work that would be required for righteousness because righteousness came through faith alone in Christ. As we work towards verse 17, then Paul continues to exhort people to adopt this way of thinking and to keep persevering in the upward call to God in Christ Jesus. And it's here in verse 17 then that Paul exhorts his people to, to imitate him. And he, and he tells people to keep their eyes on those who walk according to his example. Now, I don't know about you, when you were reading this in small groups this week, um, this, kind of, this might have come across as a little arrogant or hubristic. I'm not sure. But, but I think if we look at it in context of what he's been saying, it's, I think it's coming from a place of compassion. I think Paul is speaking directly to his fellow Jewish believers and making the point that if he could take this leap of faith, they could as well. I'm picturing Paul uh, cliff diving with a bunch of his, his pals, right? If you, if you ever jumped off a cliff into water, it's really thrilling, right? But it's really scary too. It, it, it takes a, you know, some, you gotta muster some courage to jump off. And then I think what Paul is saying here is look, I jumped off the cliff. I've landed in the water safely, and the water is warm and awesome. Jump like I did. Believe how I'm teaching you to believe, and you will be fine. Imitate me in making the leap of faith, and you will find the warm waters of everlasting life in Christ Jesus. So how, how do we make this leap? How would they have made that leap? In, in first century Christianity. Paul gives us the key in verse 20. He calls us to be citizens of heaven. This is contrasted harshly with being an enemy of the cross and being obsessed with gluttony and being obsessed with things of this earth. A citizen of heaven is primarily concerned with waiting for Jesus and sharing in the glorious transformation and the healing of our bodies that he will bring at the end of all things. A citizen of heaven knows that righteousness is achieved through faith and not through works of the law. This concept then of replacing your earthly citizenship with a heavenly one, it, it's crucial for understanding this passage. Because, here's why, that for, for a Jewish believer, being a Jew wasn't just a religious thing. It was a civic matter as well. It was their nationality. It was their primary identity. And for the Gentile, many of them would have been Roman citizens. And the normative Roman culture would have been in no way congruent with the lifestyle that God desires for his people. Roman society was violent, decadent, and depraved in ways too gruesome for me to get into this morning. 
So both the Jew and the Gentile were going to have to set aside their earthly civic identities and claim a new citizenship, one of heaven and not of earth, one that is concerned with the return of Jesus and with the resurrection of the dead, not concerned with wallowing in gluttony and shame. For the Jew, being a citizen of heaven would be working through not being enslaved to the law, but rather living a new life, understanding that the law was fulfilled in Jesus' death on the cross. And because of this, they didn't have to require other non-Jewish believers to adhere to the Torah in the same way as in the past. For the Gentile, then, being a citizen of heaven would be rejecting the decadence and the immorality of the dominant Roman culture and choosing to shift their minds away from earthly things. Both groups, Paul is calling them to reject core elements of their civic identities in order to belong to this new nation, the the nation of heaven. And this isn't just true for first century believers. This has been, and it will be true for all nations throughout all of human history. And this is especially true for those of us living in America where our religion and our civic identity are really muddled up right now. I don't feel like it's doom and gloom to say that the church in America is in a very dark place. Over the past 20 years, we've seen denominations and churches splitting over a a wide range of new issues. And, And during the past four years especially, the divide within the American church has grown more deep and more hostile than I've ever seen it in my my. 33 years of living. Social media, if you dabble in it, uh, it gives us a window into the horrors, right? And it's commonplace now for, for us to witness Christians tearing each other down, tearing down their fellow believer with vitriol and hate and malice and self-righteousness. Brothers and sisters in Christ are unfriending each other, are muting each other, are blocking each other, canceling each other, rejecting each other. And most painfully, many are walking away from Christianity in order to pursue a version of an American civic identity. I fall into this trap myself. It's my humble belief that citizenship is at the root of this division within our church. Instead of rooting our citizenship in heaven, we have rooted our citizenship in two contrasting pictures of America. And we have become overly politicized on both sides of the aisle. If you do an audit of the church in America right now, you're not going to find people arguing about circumcision. Christianity today isn't, isn't writing articles about that. Not even a little. Instead, we're arguing about how to handle racial inequalities and how to adequately advocate for justice. Beyond that, the church can't even agree about what justice is. Is social justice the same as biblical justice? We're arguing about sexuality. What what is biblical and God-ordained? What is permissible? What is sinful? We're arguing about femininity and masculinity. What, What does it mean to be a man and a woman? We're arguing about immigration and the border and refugees. We're arguing about abortion. We're arguing about the environment and jobs and foreign policy and educational policy and the list goes on and on and on. 
Here in the States, it, it, it deeply grieves me to see the church being divvied up amongst the Democrats and the Republican parties and to see us pitted against one another. I've fallen into this trap myself and I've lost many hours of my life arguing with friends and family members. I've lost even more time scrolling through Facebook and Twitter in disbelief at the lack of unity that, that I'm seeing in the body of Christ. It, it's, it's bad. I've lost real relationships over this stuff, and I'm sure you have too. We may not be arguing about circumcision, but we are still arguing, and we are still dividing, and we are still being so consumed by earthly things that we have lost the call for unity. And what's truly challenging about this is I don't think the church in America could agree right now on what the core tenets of being a citizen of heaven even are. I'm not sure we would have 100% consensus within the, the Christian groups at, at U of I. Like, if we did a survey at all-campus worship, what, what are the core tenets of being a citizen of heaven? I, I doubt we would have consensus. I, I even wonder, in our, in our church, you know, which isn't ginormous, would we, be, would we even be able to gain consensus here? So all that got me thinking, what would Paul say to us? What would he say if he wrote us a letter? How would his letter read to the church in America? I gotta be honest, it's kind of an overwhelming thought exercise. It wasn't fun to do, but I think it's a worthwhile one for all of us to engage in. I would encourage you to do this on your own. Spend a little time this week thinking, what, what would Paul say to us? From my seat, I think he would exhort us to un unaffiliate from any political party. And he would scold us for how seduced we become by the earthly American political system. And he would remind us that neither party adequately represents the heart of Jesus for his people. I think he would encourage us to listen more and post less. I think he would exhort us to prioritize unity within the walls of the church over unity within the walls of a convention. And I think he would say to us what he said to the Philippians, you are a citizen of heaven first and foremost. Shift your focus from earthly things and set your mind on heavenly things. Eternal life, the resurrection of the dead, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. I think he would say to us, your citizenship in America should be counted as dung in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. I think he would call us to repent and he would call us to seek unity at all costs. I think if Paul wrote a letter to the church in America today, it would probably be longer than all of his letters in the New Testament combined. He would probably need like six scrolls. I know for me, uh, I mentioned this earlier when I shared about my sabbatical, I, I feel pretty hopeless. I feel disillusioned and I feel complicit. I feel complicit as a, a Christian in America myself. And I, I feel bad because I don't have a gangbusters application for us. But I do think there is one small step we could all take. And I think if, if just a line of life did this, we, we could 
see a little bit of an impact in our region. I think if all of us could seriously take the call to be a citizen of heaven, we would each be able to influence maybe one other person to embrace that citizenship. And who, who knows where it could go from there, right? If you could raise your family or your, your household of roommates to be citizens of heaven, that, that even multiplies it more. We can invite our friends, our neighbors into this new citizenship because I think a lot of non-Christians are getting disillusioned with, with American idealism. And we can offer them a different civic identity, one in Christ. And maybe if we did this in a, in a small way, in a generation or two, the church in America could regain its distinctiveness, could regain its vital autonomy and once again become a shining light in the darkness. End of the day, it's God's church, right? We, we belong to him. But I'm going to be pulling and doing what I can to keep the flame of Christ alive here in my home while I'm alive on this planet, and I hope you'll join me in doing that yourself. Look for opportunities to be a citizen of heaven and never forget the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Let's worship together in song.